0: Uh, More and more we pray in Jesus' name for His glory. Amen. Uh, Tonight, I want to begin with the cross. Because there's something about this moment in human history that points to the counterintuitive way in which God works in the world. Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, previously beaten, now bleeding, mocked, spit on, stripped naked, nails in His hands and feet, On a cross before the public, a sign which was literally intended as a joke hanging above his head. It said, this is the king of the Jews. They made fun of him. They gambled over his clothes. They asked him if he was thirsty and they gave him vinegar. They screamed, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. They watched him die. They put a spear in his side. They carried his body to a tomb. Now I want to begin with a cross To show you something about how God works, because if you were watching that scene unfold, you would think as many folks who were there did on either side. Game over. That was it. The powerful leaders of the day wins. I guess he wasn't really the king of the Jews after all. They were right. Let's keep looking for the Messiah, because if he does come, surely, surely he would be stronger than this. But one eternal truth that was working behind the scenes that day that they just couldn't understand and honestly we would have a hard time believing ourselves and we still do is that God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. They didn't know. They didn't expect it. They didn't see it coming. And neither do we, which is why we hate weakness in our own lives. We hate it. We hate the feeling of feeling foolish. We hate not knowing something or being exposed as, you know, maybe not the greatest athlete on the field or the court or not knowing the answer to every question or not making the highest grade or not being the most connected. We, we hate weakness. And that's exactly, I think, why this story really can resonate with us so much because Moses doesn't get it either. He doesn't know how the story's about to unfold as we're going to study for the rest of the semester. He doesn't know how God is going to work through him, actually through his weaknesses to rescue his people from oppression. He doesn't know that God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the wise, but we know it and we need to know it tonight because if we don't, then we will constantly and foolishly lean into our own sense of self-confidence to get through this life. And our self-reliance will rob us of the joy of finding true strength outside of ourselves. That's kind of where I want to go with this narrative tonight. So how does God use what is weak in the world to shame the strong? First, we we need to see kind of Moses' two-fold problem with strength here. Remember where we are in the story. God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush to call him to be the leader of the people, to lead them out of their oppressive situation in Egypt. Moses grew up in Egypt. He, he ran away uh, after living there for 40 years because he killed a guy and he ran away so that he wouldn't be killed. Pharaoh was aware of Moses and he had sent a search party after him. And so now he's just hiding, like he's literally a fugitive hiding with sheep. And God comes to him and tells him who he is. This is a continuation from the same, the burning bush passage from last week. It's still the same scene. So God's come to him. He tells him who he is and he tells him what he's, what he wants him to do. To go back to Egypt and to go back to that Pharaoh who's seeking to kill him and to say, I want you to let God's people go. That's the task. It's a tall task. And I'll just say from the beginning that I think Moses' problem is that he thinks that what matters most at this point is his strength. And he just didn't have it. He saw that he didn't have it. Especially when you consider what he's up against. So one of the problems for Moses, he thinks it's about his strength. But also think about the strength of Egypt. This is ancient Egypt that we're talking about. You know, as a world superpower, ancient Egypt. And I'm not exactly sure. I did a little bit of looking into this this week. You guys may know more than I do, but I know within a, definitely a few hundred years of this event that Egypt is leading in the world in so many different areas. Right? Advanced military systems, in mathematics and sciences of the day, in uh, you know in buildings. And obviously, we have the pyramids and language systems, medicines, all these different things. This is this is that Egypt that we're talking about. Not to mention Pharaoh himself, who who could get anyone to do anything that he wanted them to do. Pharaoh could just speak a word and tell one of his yes men. He had these magicians that served him in his court, and they would just do whatever he wanted to do. They did all these weird tricks that we'll see in another passage, but but they also were like really good speakers. They were great at oratory skills. I don't think that's the correct way to say that, which is ironic. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. So they were they were good speakers and they would just present the king's message these these guys that served Pharaoh often called like the mouthpiece of the king. And so he would tell them to go and tell the people what to do and they would do it. Like this is what Moses is up against. Egypt, wealthy, stable, strong. And God tells Moses, yeah, go to them and tell them that God said to let my people go. You know how sometimes well-meaning Christians will say things like God will never ask more of you than you can handle. Uh, yeah, he, he will. And like this is a good example Moses can't handle this, which is why he loses his mind in this passage. Did y'all hear it? Like he's losing his mind. He's coming up with every possible reason not to do this thing that God's calling him to do. In the end, he begrudgingly submits to the plan, but it's begrudgingly. I want to work through four responses of Moses' response to God's call here. And I'll put a little handy chart there for you. 3.11, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, Moses feels completely inadequate. This who am I is total like self-pity kind of talk. But it's honest. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And he sees Pharaoh and he sees himself. He feels inadequate. In 4.1, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me. Or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. This one's interesting because it's basically Moses drawing on his past to say that he would never be an effective leader. And the reason why is because he's he's actually resonating and thinking about his own sense of shame and what he's been through in the past. He knows that there are people there who knows what he did. That he murdered a guy and ran away. One scholar said the passing years had not relieved Moses of his deep sense of failure. All these years later, and the thing that he comes up with is he's ineffective. God could pick someone who was better suited for the job. And you know what? He's probably right. God could have, but he didn't. He picked him. The third thing he says is in 410, after God... Gives him these signs. He moves from his shameful history to something that he clearly felt so insecure about. And that's his speech. And Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Now think of the context. Pharaoh, who regularly had these men who were good talkers. And Moses sees in himself that he, he, it could be a stammer or a stutter or something like that. But he, just, he, he doesn't feel like he could get the words out. He feels incompetent in a word. And finally, 4.13, which is my favorite response. And Moses said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Like, okay, you're not going to believe me about this or about that? Okay, just send somebody else. You hear the desperation. Moses believed there has to be someone better qualified to do this. He felt inferior. So that's Moses, inadequate, ineffective, incompetent, and inferior. Moses' problem is that he thinks that, he, that what matters most is his strength. But Moses was not strong. In fact, he was deathly afraid and deeply weak. And if I'm honest, uh, I, have, I have actually come to identify far more with Moses and like feel a little sympathy toward him over the last few years, more than I did before. I alluded to this a little bit last semester, and I kind of wanted to give you more of a picture um, of what... What some of this has looked like in my own life in ministry when at uh, at least at one point and several others that I just felt like I was not the guy for the job. And so I'll back up to this. I first began to pursue full-time ministry a few years after college. So I graduated college and I worked um, in, in my field and uh, just for a few years and then began to pursue seminary after that. And if I'm honest, one of the main reasons that I felt like you know, maybe I was called into ministry is because I thought I was pretty good at it. Like, I thought, you know, people had affirmed me in leading Bible studies and like talking to people that I didn't know and I enjoyed being up front and making a fool of myself because that's ministry. And I I just enjoyed stuff like ministry. And at, at some time, probably in that time period, if I was honest, I would have said I felt like the church needed me. Maybe I've even felt like God needed me to be a minister. My problem then, and really still my problem now is that, is that I felt that my strength was what mattered most for this job. And there've been a handful of times where that just has all come crashing down by God's grace. And one of those times was about a year and a half ago. And I was dealing with some ministry situations, uh, that were just, they were just too much, just too much. And I couldn't handle it. And I, and I really lost it. Like, um, I have this mental image of me and this very specific memory etched in my mind of, of sitting in my old office uh, in Huntsville. And it was an office that I shared with, like, the youth guy from that local church. And I was really glad he wasn't there that day. Because I was just, like, on the ground, head in my hands, weeping. And the only time I would look up, I would look up at this picture that hangs in my office still of my ordination service. And all these guys laying their hands praying for me. And I just cried and said, it's just too much. It's just too much. It's just too much. I can't do it. And there have been a lot of times like that in ministry. At one point, I asked my counselor, "Um, so should I get another job? (laughs) Like, should I, should I do something different? And this is pretty ironic, I would say, in God's providence. Uh, that same day that I'm describing was actually the day that I got a phone call that said, we think you might be the guy for the Clemson job. Oddly enough, that was a year and a half ago, that same day. Here's the point. I hated it. Inadequate, ineffective, incompetent, inferior. Do you know that feeling in any different area of your life? It may be kind of a ministry thing for you, uh, but it may not be. It may just be something you see in yourself where you identify with one of those four terms. I imagine you do. Where you just sometimes feel like it's just too much. I can't handle it. Inadequate. Do you question who you are? Due to things that maybe people have said about you or how you see yourself, you feel insecure about your personality Or your background or your family or your body or something else that's in you that you just question, who am I anyway? You feel ineffective because maybe people know your past. Your shame weighs so heavily. And you think there has to be somebody who's better suited to do this. Or incompetent, that there's just something wrong with you. For Moses, it was his speech. For you, it could be the way you communicate or you doubt your social skills or you feel stupid in certain crowds. You feel inferior. You always believe that there is someone so much better than you, someone so much smarter than you, someone so much more athletic than you or purer than you or more skilled than you, more like spiritually mature than you that you'll never measure up. But that's the problem, right? Sometimes... It's just too much. But what we think is that we just have to be stronger to get through it. Our culture tells us, certainly, to look within, find the solutions, believe in yourself, dig deep, find (coughs) strength within. This weekend, Kelly and I, this Kelly over here, we got to have a pretty nice date on Saturday. And we went to see The Greatest Showman. That movie, in my opinion... The best movie of 2018 that I've seen so far. I've only seen that one. But <laughs> so good. I'm not going to illustrate from the movie. I'm no spoiler Um But I want to illustrate from one of the songs for a second. One of the main songs from the movie that, that actually has become like one of the theme songs for the Olympics, if you've been watching it on NBC, is, is This Is Me, right? It's a great song. It's so catchy. It's really fun. It gets in your head. It's such a cool part in the movie. It's like a pump you up song, whatever. But the lyrics, I don't know if you've listened to the lyrics. Uh, They're not real life. They're not. They're not real life. And I don't want to, like, I love this movie. And I love this song. I listen to the soundtrack. I listen to this song probably four times a day. Which is probably why it's in this message. But it's like, this is not real life. And if we're honest, we identify far more with Moses' complaints than we do with the bearded lady's lyrics. And this is me. Can I read you a couple lyrics? She says, When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to send a flood. I'm going to drown them out. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. And then later, another round of bullets hits my skin. Well, fire away, because today I won't let the shame sink in. We are bursting through the barricades and reaching for the sun. We are warriors. Yes, that's what we've become. We are warriors. Such a catchy song, and I hate to critique. It's really beautiful, but it's really hopeless. This message is, is such a hopeless message for us if we're honest with ourselves. Because people's words do cut us down, they do, they hurt. I want to be brave, but sometimes I'm just not. That idea that I won't let the shame sink in. Gosh, I wish that was true. It's hard to do, right? Here's my point. We can so falsely believe that the power comes from digging deep within and believing in me. But what I want to show you from this passage is that real power is far more in recognizing the solution is not from within. It is actually from without. Without. For truly weak people like me and maybe like you, true strength has to come from the outside in. You see it in the story every time Moses offers another excuse. Please notice what God did not say. When Moses said, who am I? Moses didn't say, you're Moses. Come on, bro. Like, you've got this. When Moses said, they're not going to listen to me, God didn't say, ah, you're being so hard on yourself. They miss you. They would love to hear from you. They want to know how you're doing. When Moses said, but my speech, God didn't say, I doubt anyone will notice. God doesn't make excuses for Moses' excuses. Instead, God gives a response to each one of them. God didn't tell Moses to dig deep, but to look up. He didn't tell Moses to find strength within, but rather to lean into his weakness. He didn't say to Moses, you can do this. But he did say, I will be with you. I think this is so encouraging and so humbling, particularly if you believe yourself to be weak. God's actual response to each one of Moses' complaints is astonishing. Look back at the chart. To Moses' inadequacy in 3.11, God offers his presence in 3.12. I will be with you. To Moses' ineffectiveness in one, God offers his power, giving him these miraculous signs to look to instead of himself. God gives signs all throughout redemptive history to point his people to something outside of themselves, to show them that he is able to. To save them. He is able to provide for them. Think about Noah and the rainbow or Abraham and circumcision. So God gives Moses three signs here to basically say, My power is enough for your perceived ineffectiveness. And to Moses' incompetence in 410, God offers his omnipotence in 412. I made mouths. How good is that line? I can't speak. I made mouths. Omnipotence. I will be your mouth, he says. And to Moses' sense of being inferior in 4.13, where he begrudgingly submits to God's plan, God gives his patient promise once again. I will be with you. Do you hear it? The solution for Moses' weakness is his weakness and God's strength for him. And we have to know our weaknesses in order to know his power. But isn't that the very point of faith anyway? This is really a passage about faith. True faith. This is what faith looks like. It is weak. It is feeble and it feels very frail sometimes. But it's trusting in what you can't see. Because it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith. That saves us. The answer for Moses was not his ability or sufficiency or his training or his good plan. The answer was his weakness. And his faith in God's strength for him. And when Moses was most insecure, God called him to be the mouthpiece of the true king. To waltz right into the courts of lesser kings and to say, my God has a message for you. Moses began... This passage, I think, with I can't, so I won't. But as he wrestled with God, with who God was for him, his response eventually became, as one scholar put it, I can't, but you can, so I will. This is so counterintuitive for us. We trust what we can see. We trust our plan. We trust our goals and our pursuits of those goals and our study and our connections. We trust ourselves. We put faith in. In our faith. But that's not faith, because faith is trusting in something outside of ourselves. And it doesn't feel like strength. If I could be a bit autobiographical once more, I mentioned one of those breakdowns. And this all really started for me about four years ago. When I began to go through a really difficult season of... Uh, I didn't know what words to put with it. And really, it's been over the last couple of years that I've... Really, the only word I could put with it is, is a season of weakness. Like, just this idea and this understanding that I can't, like, I can't do it. And it looked like lots of different things. It looked like anxiety, fearfulness, panic-like attacks in different settings. And I would get overcome with fear in weird situations. Like, I love standing in front of people and doing this kind of thing. And there was a season where... I became so overwhelmed with fear when I stood in front of groups of people, especially when I had to talk about myself or our ministry. And I have so many embarrassing scenes from that particular season etched in my mind where I would just start shaking. Um, I would just feel so flustered, my breathing would be out of control, and I couldn't talk. I, could, I would be in this type of setting, usually not with students. It was usually with like people in the community. And I would freeze. It was horrible. And I think one of the things that the, one of the counselors helped me to start, see, to start seeing in me um, was a couple of things. One, the enemy really is at work against us. Like, and that's, that's a real part of this. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. I have no doubt about that. But really for far too long, I tried to fight back with strength like study harder, carry myself more boldly, rely more on my gifts and my experiences and my plan rather than the one who's reliable. And so there was a particular conversation that was really helpful in the middle of this. During the beginning of this new season, I sat down with a pastor who listened to my story and processing kind of all this angst and and fears and stuff that I was working through. And this pastor's name is Joe Novenson. He's actually Jen's childhood pastor and Great guy. Many of you have heard him at different conferences and that kind of thing. When you talk to Joe Novinson, it's kind of like you're talking to Robin Williams' character from Goodwill Hunting, and you just want him to like hug you and tell you it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Um, so I, I I told my story. He didn't know me at all before this, but I told him what I was working through, and and he listened and. At one point, I stopped talking and he looked at me in the eyes and he leaned across the table and he said something I'll never forget. He said, the feeling of faith is not strength. The feeling of faith is dependent weakness. And he's right. And I hate it. And he's right. Because I like strength. I like capabilities. I like gifts and power and aptitude. But the feeling of faith is not strength. The feeling of faith is dependent weakness. If you feel weak, I would say you're beginning to tap into true strength. It's not within, it's without. So when you feel inadequate, ineffective, incompetent, or inferior, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have faith in Christ. The real question is, what do you turn to? When you feel these weaknesses, like where do your insecurities take you? Imagine it takes you to lots of different places. Numbing in all sorts of different ways or escaping. If you turn within to fix it, maybe your solution is more power, busyness, like higher responsibility. And then I can kind of fix it. If we keep turning within, double down, make yourself stronger, you will spin out. But if you look to the one that you actually can anchor your trust and hope to, you'll become grounded and strong in him. As one pastor put in a sermon I heard last week, he said, grounding your confidence in yourself is only a recipe for walking around in circles. But grounding your confidence in Christ is the life of faith. So the answers for our end. Adequies and incompetencies or fears are not found within. They are found in his presence, his power, his omnipotence, his promise that he will be with us. This is the true feeling of true faith. Or as God put it to the Apostle Paul, which we read earlier, when he was wrestling with his own sense of weakness, God said, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Is there room in your life to be found weak? And that's a real question I have for Clemson students. I'm observing you guys, getting to know you, and I'm loving it. I wonder, is there any room in your life to not have it all together? To be weak. A deeper question still is, perhaps you would say, yeah, I'm weak in these areas. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that God still loves you when you're weak? Do you believe that God still loves you when you are weak, when you are bruised or you are filled with shame or riddled with anxiety or depression or fear? When you feel overwhelmingly inadequate or insecure, do you believe in those moments that you are still loved? I recently heard this story, and I think this came from Brian Habig, who's a pastor in Greenville, But he was an RUF campus minister before he was there. And uh, he was in Mississippi State, and I think this was when he was a campus minister in Mississippi State. He talked about this man, uh, this student of his who was in his 20s, obviously, who was like the rock star of his group. I mean, this guy was just incredible. He was a great athlete. He was attractive. He was fun, well-rounded, involved in the life of campus ministry. He was really well-liked. He led Bible studies. And then he got Hodgkin's lymphoma as a young man. Curable, but still a very rough road of treatment. And he went through chemo and he lost everything. You know, he lost his comfort, he lost his good looks. He had withered down to nothing, he lost his health. He was no longer strong, he was no longer the star athlete. He lost his positions, he was not in a position to lead Bible studies or things like that anymore. And he was in the hospital one night and he was trying to walk from his bed to the bathroom and he just collapsed on the floor and his body was so weak. And he, he said that it was there while he's lying on the floor, unable to even get to the toilet, that he said he got it. That he hadn't been leading Bible studies. That he had not felt like praying in months. He was doing nothing for God. And on the floor, he said he got it. He understood grace. He said, I was helpless and I realized God loved me just the same when I was on the floor doing nothing. My power is made perfect in your weakness. What matters most is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. So how do you know that you really are loved in your weakness? Tonight we begin with a cross. Which is what I want to encourage you to do with your weakness. To begin with the cross. That pivotal moment in history which seemed like a colossal failure. Cosmic weakness on display which God then transformed into resurrection power. Eternal strength now given to you. Now put in you through the spirit of Christ. Christ. If you trust in the one who suffered in weakness for your weakness, that you might know his power as your strength. I want to offer you one more specific application here at the end. It's about those signs. You know those signs? I didn't talk a lot about them. There were you know, lots of different signs that God gave Moses in this passage. And really they were kind of a foreshadowing of the plagues. It's interesting how God does give signs all throughout redemptive history to point his people to something outside of themselves to show them that he is able to save them. He is able to provide for them. Is it possible that God is giving you some sort of sign in which you can lean into to find strength? Is it possible? Does God still use signs? I would tell you that you have at least two at your disposal. Jesus talks about baptism in this way. A sign that your sins have been washed clean in His sufferings for all your inadequacies, for all your insufficiencies and competencies, and mine too. And so we look back on our baptism. If, if you're a believer, I would encourage you to become baptized. And many of you were perhaps baptized as children. We look back on our baptism not as a profession of our strength. Look what I have done. Look what I proclaimed but rather as an expression of our dependent weakness. Look what God has done for me. Washing me clean in the blood of Christ. Baptism is a sign that says of, that God is saying this one belongs to me. And I'm with you. Because you were in me. And is this also not the very purpose of the Lord's Supper? Another sign which Jesus gives that he's left for his church to celebrate at his table, his sacrifice for our weak selves. Not our strong selves, but for our weak selves. But it's not just a sign that points to what Jesus has done. There's something so special about dining at the table of the king with your fellow Christians that Jesus himself meets us in a spiritual way in that meal. To do what? To strengthen and nourish us for another week ahead in our weak bodies. In this seemingly very strong world. So I think baptism and the Lord's Supper are two signs that God is giving you to strengthen your faith. God knows that we need regular reminders of where our true strength comes from. So he gives us these to strengthen us in him. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Friends, if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you. You are weak. You are foolish. And you are so loved. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would let these words, these truths from this passage sink